Here on Just Energy, we explore what energy injustice is, its racial and social dimensions, and how to make future energy policy making more inclusive by design. Because it's never just about energy, it's about people. The transition from fossil fuels to a decarbonized future will have significant implications for historically marginalized populations. And indigenous communities across the US and the world are on the so-called front lines of this transition. This energy transition is manifest in indigenous communities in changes to their land and water rights, their economic livelihoods, and their social and cultural institutions. Here to chat with us today about some of these issues is Dr. Andrew Curley, who has contributed formative research on indigenous communities' views of energy and environmental systems and economic development in an era of energy and climate change. Dr. Curley is a member of the Navajo Nation who works on coal and water rights within the Navajo Nation and on energy transition issues across indigenous communities. He is also an assistant professor in the School of Geography, Development and Environment at the University of Arizona. Before we welcome Andrew, however, let me also introduce our co-host this week. Carrie Corpola is a student in our dual Master of Public Affairs and Master of Science in Environmental Science program at the O'Neill School, where she's focusing her studies on the energy transition. Prior to graduate school, Carrie worked in environmental education and conservation for the public and nonprofit sectors, and also served in AmeriCorps, providing outdoor education opportunities for disadvantaged children. Carrie, welcome, and tell us where you're from. Hi, I'm so excited to be doing this today. I'm glad to be here. Um, so I grew up in, uh, in Michigan, in South Central Michigan, in Battle Creek. Nice. I'm really curious, Carrie, when you talk about your homeland, when you talk about Michigan, do you, um, do you use the, the mitten? Do you hold up your hand and, and point to where you grew up? I do. That would usually be my go-to, um, but you know, podcasting is not a visual medium. Uh, but yes, I do. <laughs> That's right. So I am from Wisconsin and um, I have a little bit of an issue with Michiganders <laughs> because I actually firmly believe that the mitten belongs to Wisconsin. I see. I see. All right. Well, that, <laughs> we'll have to agree to disagree. That's right. Um, <laughs> so what's your favorite thing about where you're from? I think my favorite thing about Michigan, where I grew up, uh, is the Great Lakes, first and foremost, but uh, not only the Great Lakes, but just the abundance of water that Michigan has. It, You know, you don't have to go far before you find a nice lake or river or stream. Totally agree. That's awesome. And uh, what's your favorite thing so far about your O'Neill School experience? Um, it's definitely the dedication that all the students and faculty have, um, especially the students. They understand the policy side, they understand the environmental science side, and they understand that putting those th two things together will really make a difference in the world. Yes. I love that answer. Okay. Carrie, why don't you join me in welcoming Andrew to Just Energy? Welcome, Andrew. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So on this podcast, uh, we're exploring the meaning of energy justice. Can you tell us what energy justice means to you? Well, um, I would say that energy justice probably uh, as an idea built off of uh, the long tradition of uh, uh, economic and not economic and environmental justice um, and thinking about um, the way that people of color, indigenous people have pushed back against pollution, against contamination in their homelands and in their uh, communities. And um, thinking about not only, you know, the after effects of industry and how that impacts where you live, work and play, but also 
the the production side of how we get the or develop or produce those kinds of pollutants in the first place and a lot of that has to do uh, with energy production energy justice is not just about communities that are impacted by the production of energy but also who has access to energy and what kind of energy they might be able to get for what kind of price and so those are also questions that might uh, be included within uh, how we think about energy justice. But um, I, I would say that the bedrock of it comes from the way environmental justice has framed uh, our social environmental questions over the last three or four decades. So tell us, I'm really curious to to learn about you personally and what led you into this field. So so how did you find yourself engaging in the topics of energy justice? I um, started working on the Navajo Nation um, after finishing an undergraduate degree in sociology. But during that time, I was uh, working through a commodity chain analysis with uh, an activism with uh, fair trade and thinking about how coffee and other kinds of cash agricultural products reach the, the store shelves of the global north. And um, we were looking at the way things were produced in many different countries and we're examining that and, and, and the inbuilt exploitation within the cost of these commodities once they reach the, um, the store shelves and, and thinking about who is benefiting and who is not in the production of these goods. And so, you know, this, this idea of following the commodity to its base uh, origin uh, was something that I started to think about at that time. And then thinking about what are the social relations produced around the production of that commodity for that is produced for the international market. And how does that speak to a larger, not only set of environmental questions, but a political economy for that community and, and nation uh, that, that ha might happen to be um, producing this. So um, I was specifically interested in, in coffee and in the, this is coming off of the late 90s, early 2000s. So, you know, I spent some time in Tanzania and spent some time in Ghana looking at these things um, with uh, coffee and, and, the, and co cocoa or cocao, the base, the base commodity that's used for chocolate and speaking and interviewing farmers as best I could. Um, you know, I'm a member of the Navajo Nation and grew up in the Southwest and spent some time in the Navajo Nation as, a, you know, when I was very young, I was, I went, that's where I started school and lived in the reservation for a while. And so, you know, I was just thinking about, okay, so what is, how might our lives be structured in similar ways to I'm seeing, how I'm seeing this with farmers in Africa? And I was like, well, what is it that we produce? You know, what is it that we produce for sale? And that's when I started to look at coal because coal was, and was at the time, this was 2006, 2007, Coal was a dominant commodity that was uh, it was um, about half of non or, you know, there's a range of estimates, but it was uh, about some people would say it was about half of non-federal revenues for the tribe. In 2013, when I did my research, it was a little bit less than that. It was 25 percent of tribal coffers. But I think that that's still, you know, it was an important source. It was an important resource, uh, not only for, for revenues for the tribal government, but also in the form of jobs. And so it also produced a social relation for people who, who participated in the industry. So then I, I, that's how I thought, oh, okay, so coal 
is kind of like our cash commodity. It's like our chocolate. It's like our 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 coffee. Um, and so we have to really think about, you know, what what are how is it connected with outside communities? What does it say about the nature of colonialism? The nature of um, of um, our own development within the reservation over a period of time. So that's how I became interested in these questions of energy. I know it's kind of a backdoor way of getting into it, but that's that's how that's how I came came to that topic. Building off of that, that's a good segue, actually. Um, so in your research, you frequently engage in topics of energy justice and just transitions within the Navajo Nation. Um, can you talk to us or walk us through some of those key themes of your research in, in that space? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the main points that I've been trying to make in my research is that energy transition is uneven, and it's something that will cost certain communities more than others. You know, we, and it's not a new thing. That's the other point I was I was trying to make. It's, it's something that we've been experiencing for more than 50 years. I mean, the whole premise of economic development on the Navajo Nation was based on an idea of energy transition. They just didn't use that terminology at the time. Energy transition was always imagined, especially in the Sun Belt in the Southwestern states. And it's always been kind of a site of, of struggle, either political or on the ground struggle, you know, at the, at the highest echelons of power within the state government to, you know, the communities of the Navajo and Hopi tribes who have been impacted directly by these, um, by these industries. I think we've been throwing the word transition around a lot and you've illuminated a lot about it. Um, but uh, in your work specifically, um, you consider how words or concepts have different meanings to different people or groups. Um, and I think I was hoping you could give us um, your take on that word transition. Um, you know, what is your understanding or interpretation of that term? And specifically, what understanding do you think that the Navajo tribal government has of the transition, of the word transition, excuse me? Yeah, I mean, um, I guess my definition is when you're changing uh, from one energy, from one energy source to another, you know, that's, I think, fairly um, accepted way of thinking about it. Um, I think, you know, but it's, it's a little less important what I think about it. It's more for me, what was interesting was how it was entering political discourse in the Navajo Nation. If we look historically over the last 20 years in the Navajo Nation, we see that groups who have long articulated the environmental damage that coal has on the communities in which they live. And then also started to talk about how coal is a major contributor to CO2 emissions. You know, they started to make these linkages in, in their discourse, in the way that they presented these informations to Dene youth, to environmental groups uh, outside of the Navajo Nation and to uh, tribal lawmakers. And so I'm saying that there's this political environment in which they're operating where this idea of transition starts to enter the vocabulary of Navajo lawmakers because of the efforts largely from environmental justice organizations. These are things that have become part of the Navajo political landscape starting in the year 2005 and 2006 when a coalition of organizations in the Navajo Nation created something called the Just Transition Coalition. So they were using this language that was swirling around in environmental discourse, you know, nationally, but then bring it into the Navajo Nation. And they're saying, you know, 
it's 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 closing um, uh, millions of dollars in revenues are going to dry up. Um, hundreds of jobs for Diné workers are going to be gone. You know, we are dealing with all of these economic and environmental burdens from the energy uh, that was produced for decades for the benefit of California, for the benefit of Nevada and parts of Arizona. So, you know, it is, you know, ethically and morally right that the, these these people, places that benefited from the production of this energy should help us transition out of it and give us new sources of income and revenue in the form of, of new energy technologies. And they're going to the California Corporate Commission and saying, hey, you know, these benefits that Southern California Edison, the utility at, who was shutting down the power plant at the time, there's a lot of background details I didn't give you, sorry. But they um, they should, that money that goes to them in the form of credits for reducing their carbon emissions, that should go back toward the Navajo Nation to revitalizing an economy that was that was wounded by the closing of this mine. And so that was uh, one of the first attempts. And even though it didn't succeed, it did set a base ground of, of understanding and, and discursive um, of terminology that can be used. And so that's when I'm saying this idea of transition becomes part of our political language. And eventually it becomes part of the Navajo Nation law in 2009 with the passage of the Green Jobs Acts. There are two act, two legislations that are attached together that are called the Green Jobs Acts. And they created like a, uh, a commission and a fund of Navajo people to get resources to invest in energy, alternative energy uh, technology, sustainable energy technologies. And sometimes the differences between the two are, uh, are important. Again, that effort is largely unsuccessful, even though it passes politically, materially, there's nothing that, that comes from it. So, you know, it's an effort after an effort, you know, trying to make this this change. But um, what I think is interesting is uh, in to, after 2010, especially around 2012 and 2013, when we start to see new kinds of pressures on the last remaining coal mines in the Navajo Nation. In fact, between uh, 2006 and 2010, uh, one of the longstanding coal mines in the Navajo Nation shut down on its own accord because it just didn't see the coal was profitable. The owners of it, the Chevron Corporation, uh, shut down what was called the um, McKinley Mine in 2009, and that that you know that mine also had a similar impact: less revenues for the tribal government. People are left. Um, unemployed. And then the Salt River Project, the utility in Arizona, public utility in Arizona was saying like, well, we want to renew the lease for the Navajo generating station for 25 years, but you know the terms have to be almost exactly the same as they were in the late 60s, or we're just going to walk and that mine's going to shut down. Um, what it ends up happening, especially with the Navajo uh, mine case, is that uh, tribal uh, council delegates uh, organize uh, somewhat, um, um, you know, behind closed doors and without a lot of public input to create this front company, this enterprise called the Navajo Transitional Energy Corporation. And so this is like really, this corporation in itself, it's been heavily critiqued because it's just become like a pro coal it's even just like investing in old mines that are shutting down now, but it's like in the language, in its charter, 
in its title, it says transition, right? It's called Navajo Transitional Energy. Uh, I think it's actually called Company, Navajo Transitional Energy Company. And it's, um, and, and if you look at its enabling legislation, its mandate is to transition out of coal. It's using the revenues of coal, kind of like what the old dependency theorists used to do with import substitution. They're like, we'll continue to get money from the commodity that we're, we're selling on the international market, but we're going to take some of that money and invest it in these other industries that we think will have better promise in the future. So that was the original intent of Entech. It hasn't turned out to be that way, and there's a number of reasons why. But I think what it what for me as somebody who does this analysis, you know, it's like what it's saying to me is that that language of transition has entered the political mainstream of the Navajo Nation. It used to just be among environmental groups and and environmental justice organizations where you would hear the language of energy transition. Now it's in law. Now it's even in a company that is owned by the Navajo Nation that has millions of dollars of uh, assets at its disposal. I think that's that's brilliant. And actually, I'll just add that I think it, your story picks up on two other themes that I commonly find with transitions. One is the temporal dynamics. In the literature, we talk about the energy transition as this multi-decade, if not century-long transition, right? Because it's the the replacement of one type of energy source for another, and we have to to um, change our entire investment portfolio to trans to have that complete transition. But yet, on the ground, the transition is happening so fast in specific communities. So there's this kind of temporal mismatch with the term. And then the other one is that I think you hit on so squarely is thinking about the transition as a movement to sustainable energy at the negligence of thinking of the transition as a socioeconomic and a cultural uh, and a values shift as well, right? And if we only uphold the former and at the neglect of the, the latter, then that's when entire communities might be uh, severely disadvantaged, both in the, the present as well as, of course, as they have been in the past. Exactly. And I think what happens is that the communities read through that, you know, they can recognize that this is a threat to their jobs and livelihood, and then they end up opposing green legislation, even though it may not have an, uh, an explicit or direct uh, relationship with the work they're doing. But they become they become political opponents of, of uh, ideas of moving to sustainable energy because we're not thinking about them and including them in the conversation. Building off of what uh, Dr. Carley just said, um, you, Dr. Curley, um, as a scholar <laughs> of, of geography, um, you know, we've we've touched on this a little bit already, but there are very important spatial implications of your research. And um, you're wondering if you could delve a little into those. Or maybe you could talk about the the challenges or the opportunities that it affords you by working in a department of geography with the with the type of kind of deep ethnographic research that you work on. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll I'll try to I'll try to get at both of these questions. So like I think like um I think geography has been a good place for me to think through these questions because um, uh, because they're attentive to space and they're attentive to um, making these uh, these kind of connections where I can actually like or where they give me the the space kind of in a metaphorical sense to think about like um, how places like Phoenix and Tucson benefit from what's going on in the Navajo Nation. I feel like that geography gives me some of that kind of um, um, tool, that kind of the, the tools to think about how different places are interacting with each other. And, um, and so I've actually found that to be advantageous uh, to work in a, in a geography department because these things are very spatial. You know, these questions are very uh, 
um, spatial and like it's 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 something that we talk about. I mean, indigenous people are inherently geographers, or maybe you know we are should be credited as the first geographers of the continent um, because you know we're always thinking about land and places and where things are and how we relate to it. And um, and I and I think what happens with the coal economy and with energy production is we're always thinking about these things in terms that that geographers would recognize. You know, we're thinking about um, what Phoenix is doing and how they're benefiting from us, how Tucson is benefiting from us with this. How um, I remember when um, there were some of the council delegates from the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe were going around, um, you know, talking about why they were opposing. Uh, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline, this was in 2016. And then they're thinking historically, you know, about their treaty rights and about land that they signed uh, and agreed to with the federal government as a concession for large, for most of the plains, right, in order to live in what was once called the Great Sioux Nation, but those treaty rights being um, disregarded by the federal government and violated. And in, in the, the DAPO being an example of that. And so I think um, that's, you know, so dealing a project on the Navajo Nation that has to do with energy and the politics of it was like, it fits really well within, um, within geography as a, as a, as a discipline in ways that it doesn't in sociology or in anthropology. I'm wondering if I can pick back up on a, a thread about your research and the focus on, um, or the approach that you take rather, that you take in, in many of the studies that I've read of yours, a very ethnographic approach. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious about some of the challenges that you find and opportunities that you think that that um, could provide and does provide, as well as any personal reflections you might have about using this kind of research design in academia. You know, this is probably the downside of geography <laughs> is that we don't have enough experience with ethnography. There's a lot of really good ethnographies in geography, but like, you know, it's 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 not it's within a range of other kinds of methodologies that are available. And I think what ethnography does is and sometimes we see it as um, people say it's qualitative data. And I think it's a very quantitative data. I think ethnography is almost the most quantitative kind of data you can get. You're basically taking in everything all at once and you got to compute it in your own mind and figure out what is useful, what is not, what is what is happening, you know, you're assessing multiple issues at once and then finding out how and then you have to like identify and write out how these things are connected. Those things are possible to find through um through ethnographic field research. Now, of course, the downside is it's very taxing. It's labor intensive. It's uh, it's a singular project. You're doing it by yourself most of the time, um, and not working in a team. And it requires you to be very attentive to uh, personal relationships, to be respectful, to be to be mindful of where you're at and with people you're interacting with. Yeah, even if you're uh, from that community, like I am. I mean, I I was kind of an insider outsider. So I'm Dene. I'm a member of the Navajo Nation. People knew who I was. Uh, but I was not from the community where I was researching. I was, uh, I was, um, I was not. You know, none of my family worked in coal, and um, and so like I didn't have that direct personal connection that others, uh, even other Diné scholars I know might have. So, um, so, so I think that that impacted like the the way that the communities uh, where I was working interacted with me. It was also a little bit more challenging for that reason, um, because I had like a political. I had a, I had, I came with a po political baggage. I mean, as a member of the Navajo Nation, I've, I've expressed my politic, 
politics on certain issues. Um, the, a lot of the environmental groups that, um, that uh, have been uh, opposing coal, you know, were people I knew and I considered friends. So uh, in some of your work, two topics that you um, study, energy and water, are obviously heavily interdependent. Um, can you tell us how these relationships manifest in the Navajo Nation, especially under the conditions of worsening climate change? The water is a really interesting story because this was something that I wasn't expecting to be researching or talking about when I went to do my field work. So I was interested in the impacts of coal, right? You know, like I gave you that whole narrative of how I got interested in coal. So I developed a research proposal to look at coal and coal mining communities on the Navajo Nation. And when I arrived to the Navajo Nation in 2012, the Navajo Nation was was considering a water settlement uh, for a tributary of the Colorado River called the Little Colorado River. So this water settlement was between the state of Arizona and the Navajo Nation and the Hopi tribe. All three um, um, political entities were included. Um, and what was interesting Two things were interesting. One, um, then Senators John McCain and John Kyle were really interested in getting this passed and getting this through Congress for various reasons of federal Indian law and the way that water is um, uh, is distributed across the West. And uh, you have to take any kind of settlement to Congress and get it passed in the form of legislation. It's funny, but that's just a process. Um, and so, so they would be the ones that would bring that through Congress. And they had a settlement that that, they, that had both like a settlement of how much water the Navajo Nation got, you know, from the Little Colorado River, which was heavily criticized as, as being in favor of damming, diversions, and appropriations by non-natives upstream. But um, um, also what was included, not in the settlement, but in the congressional legislation, that Kyle and McCain were putting forward was the a renewal of the lease for the Navajo Generating Station, the power plant that bought the coal uh, from the coal mining communities that I was investigating. And so it was like, okay, so coal, coal, like they wanted to renew this lease for 25 years for this power plant. And that was part of a water settlement. So it was like, they were putting all these things together. Like I didn't even have to do it. <laughs> it, it was there <laughs> yeah so i'm like for for arizona coal and water are inherently and in, intrinsically related mm -hmm. and it turns out that's true and what happened was you know so i look into the history of like well how did we get ngs in the first place like i've heard so many stories about peabody coal and peabody coal and like this capitalist motivation of peabody coal wanting to continue mining but I felt like that was just telling like the immediate story. But like Peabody Coal didn't just come out of nowhere. Right. Like it, it had to be part of an in initiative to bring uh, coal mining in the Navajo Nation and to bring it in the form of producing coal for a certain energy consumer. And so it was part of this larger energy history in the Southwest. Now we have people who spent their whole lives and careers working in the in the coal industry and who would lose jobs if uh, that suddenly shut down, even if it's the best thing for the environment and the planet. And then now we have like uh, um, a whole water network of, uh, of cap that needs uh, electricity to, to continue moving um, 
water uh, for it. And so, the, you know, all of those things became dependencies and they became very like hard bargains to get out of. But at the time we were like super optimistic and said, this is the future and this is where we're going. I mean, I don't know why I'm including we in it. I wasn't around, but <laughs> <laughs> people, decision makers at the time were thinking about it that way. So anyway, that's how water in, in Arizona and, and coal and energy are connected. Uh, are there ideas that you find are commonly misunderstood or misinterpreted? Um, phrased differently, are there common blinders that people seem to have um, as it relates to indigenous communities and their interactions with energy systems? One of the things that I've been trying to impress upon people with limited success is, um, is the idea that these questions of energy, of extraction in and around tribal communities can be complicated. Um, sometimes we see very clear political um, lines that tribal communities will draw and say, no, we don't want this and they'll oppose it, right? We saw that with Standing Rock, but sometimes they are things that are internally contested and for for various reasons, for deeper histories. And like, that's what that I'm telling about with the, talking about with the story of coal in the Navajo Nation. And I think it's really easy and sometimes desirable for non-natives to want to imagine indigenous people as like inherently resisting um, extractive industries and, and environmentally damaging forms of energy development. And that's just simply not true. Um, in fact, many tribal governments rely on coal, on oil, on gas, even uranium in the past for um, for development, for jobs, for uh, for revenues, for the communities. And these aren't things that are being used just to be rich and buy brand new trucks or whatever. <laughs> they actually go towards social services and spending on college uh, tuition scholarships for students. A lot of coal revenues went towards tribal education. Um, they go towards firewood for um, for people who don't have electricity, right? You're talking about energy inequality or, uh, you know, questions of energy justice. You have people who live under transmission lines who don't have access to that electricity. And um, and how do they keep warm in the winter? You know, they use uh, wood, wood stoves, wood burning stoves. And um, and so you have, and, and it's sometimes hard to get wood, you know, especially if they're older, you know, they can't, they don't even have the physical strength for it. And that's why coal becomes more valuable in the minds of tribal lawmakers. It's not just to become rich. It's also sometimes to fulfill kinship um, obligations. And so I think sometimes we get these really two-dimensional characterizations of indigenous understandings of the environment. So I think that would be like the number one misconception people have that I encounter, especially for, towards sympathetic communities that are like, oh, you know, I'm really interested in what's going on in indigenous communities and, and environmental racism and all that stuff, which I'm like totally down with. But at the same time, I want them to know that this is not like, don't have an overly romantic picture of what you think is happening in these places. These are places that have been struggling to survive uh, centuries of colonialism and have used different ways and approaches uh, to do that. I have one more very important question for you, <laughs> and that is, what do you wish that you'd known as you set out to tackle these issues in your own work that you'd like to share with young people or the next generation of energy justice uh, scholars, activists, practitioners, and policymakers now? I would say don't be afraid sometimes to put your own political stance and political thinking into what you're thinking about. I mean, like, I feel like I was maybe a little bit too timid 
in how I approached this. And, um, and then it wasn't good for anybody. It wasn't good for the people I was working with. It wasn't good for me. Um, it just, it caused like confusion, complication and distrust. So I think being a little bit more like honest with how you think about things, um, but maybe that's because I was doing ethnography and that's an ethnographer's way of thinking about it. That was an excellent answer. Uh, Andrew, Dr. Curley, thank you so much for all of your incredibly insightful ideas and thoughts that you shared with us today. We're, we're most appreciative. Just Energy is produced by Violet Barron and is a collaboration between myself and my public affairs students at Indiana University. In closing, we wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to our region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miyamiaki, Lenape, Borowadmik, and Sawanwa people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. We implore the federal government to respect its treaties with indigenous nations, as well as recognize all tribes seeking federal recognition.